everyone, this is Kavain. I do have a Patreon down in the description box, but I really want to get straight to the point. Um, the first part of the straight to the point is to thank everyone who has been praying for me. I did ask for people to pray for me on a daily basis, and for those who have been doing that, please continue. I have felt in very concrete and real ways the power of your prayers lifting me up and being an instrument of extraordinary divine grace. So I'm very thankful for your prayers, and I would ask everyone who's watching this video who is a Christian to say a brief prayer for me at least, and if you would like to do a certain daily prayer for me, um, please send me an email at seraphimhamilton at gmail.com because I like to keep them on a roll so that I make sure I have a constant stream of people who are praying daily for me and for my um, work here on YouTube because it's, it's, it's important work on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's, it's quite spiritually dangerous work. You know, running one's mouth all the time about these most sacred of issues, it, you, it can be dangerous. It is dangerous, scripture tells us. So, um, I thank you all for lifting me up in your prayers. Um, again, the email address is seraphimhamilton at gmail.com. Uh, so, and if you, if by the way, if, if you are no longer able to do that daily prayer, I totally get it. Like, we all have limited time, right? We have to prioritize certain things over others, certain prayer requests over others. Um, just send me an email and let me know because I just want to make sure that I am always replenishing this role of people who are doing daily prayers for me. So, uh, Thank you very much, and God has, has worked powerfully through you. Um, so I want to talk today about what it means to have peace with God and the importance of having peace with God, not just for, you know, dealing with spiritual anxiety, but actually in acquiring the very fruit of the Spirit, which some people feel might be compromised for understandable reasons if you were confident that God would forgive whatever you did and would save you despite immense and visible imperfections. I was speaking uh, uh, in the past several months with a Orthodox brother, and he said to me in the, in, in the process of the conversation, to paraphrase, I'm incredibly afraid because I don't understand how we're saved. And I think that sentiment is an understandable one when we consider the fact that when we're living in a Western Christian context, where most Christians are understandably Protestant and Roman Catholic, the inclination is to emphasize in communication with others those aspects of the Orthodox faith which specifically and clearly distinguish us from uh, Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. But the importance of those issues which do distinguish us from Western Christian traditions, and they're real issues, and they're important issues um, in, in, in many cases, uh, they only become important because of the way that they draw life and meaning from the heart and soul of the Orthodox Christian faith, which is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. St. Seraphim Sarov, in his uh, uh, um, Guide to the Spiritual Life, for his disciples, there is a question asked, why did Jesus Christ come into the world? And his response is to quote John 3.16. Over the past several days, John 3.16 to 21 has repeatedly just jumped out at me. It's appeared in these uh, unusual contexts. And I've been thinking, is God 
is God asking me to take a look at this text, to focus on this text? And this morning, a person on Facebook, whom I have never had a conversation with, never, sent me John 3:16 to 21 in a Facebook link. And I asked, why did you send me this? And she said, I just had a feeling that I should send this to you. And in fact, it is also today's liturgical reading. So I was already thinking about the importance of this text as a kind of distinct thing that I was considering speaking of on YouTube yesterday. But today, this remarkable quote-unquote coincidence occurs, which suggests to me that it is something that God wants me to think about and to um, share with you by God's grace. We can become uncomfortable because those with whom we have real theological disagreements, which are important, use phrases that are so often that we begin to feel like those phrases are not orthodox. But the apostles are orthodox. The apostles teach us how to be orthodox, which is to say they teach us how to be Christians in the fullest sense of that word. And if we cannot say comfortably, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you shall be saved, then we have a problem. Now, words have a meaning, and we have to understand what that meaning is. But it is my experience looking at my own kind of psyche that if we hear a certain biblical phrase quoted word for word from the scripture, without anybody commenting on it, we just hear the phrase, and our first impulse prior to any kind of analytical thought. Our first impulse is to qualify it, to quote another passage which seems to emphasize a different aspect of the mystery, then it is actually a passage we should focus on. Because while it is true that truth as an integrated whole has to be presented according to its balance, according to the yin and the yang, as it were, for example, Jesus says, those who are not with me are against me. And yet he also says, those who are not against us are for us. He is doing what Solomon does in his Proverbs. Solomon says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Next verse, answer a fool according to his folly. Jesus is a prophetic teacher of wisdom and he uses this same teaching method. It is a way of provoking us to meditate more deeply on the inner meaning, meaning of both sayings, because in understanding the way that they are truly harmonious in God, we will understand each of them in a more profound way when they are taken in themselves. So it is very important that we not be uncomfortable with the way the apostles themselves describe salvation. So if someone comes to you and asks, how can I be saved? Someone who's not a believer at all, who has no Christian background. This is increasingly common. You have to be able to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the meaning of the this, this phrase actually is not especially esoteric. In fact, what I would suggest to you is that when we say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, what we mean by that is essentially what we mean when we use the word in any other context. 
if somebody means by that belief is the instrument by which the act of obedience of Christ is imputed to us, well, then that that's the esoteric thing. But let's say you have a politician who you think is really going to save everything. And this is, I promise you, this is not about any specific politician. This is just an example in the abstract. Okay? So please, don't don't take it. Um, as some kind of like veiled commentary because I would tell you if I was making a commentary on politics. Um, let's say you have like a political candidate and you think, okay, this guy, he's going to save America. He's going to save my country. And uh, he totally – like you work hard for him. You go door to door. You put out flyers. You work in your uh, uh, local party office. Um, you throw yourself into this. Why? Because you really care about the issues and you think that this person is going to be instrumental in bringing to pass a more just society. And then the person totally fails. And not just fails, as soon as he comes into office, it becomes obvious that it was all just a tactic to acquire power. And he has no real concern for the issues which you hold in your heart. What would you say well how would you describe you say i really believed in this person and in saying i really believed in him you wouldn't mean anything like my belief in him was the instrument by which a just society was imputed to my account that would be completely disconnected from the meaning of all of your words it wouldn't just be non-univocal it wouldn't even be analogous the words would mean something so esoteric that it would be difficult to actually articulate the connection between these words and that which they're supposed to signify. What you would mean is, I trusted this person to do what he promised. I really thought he would do it. And because I thought he would do it, I went out and I worked hard for it. And so the work that you did is born out of your trust in him. Okay, so here's what you need to understand about faith in the scriptures. Faith has, as an internal characteristic, the quality of being formed, actualized, perfected, matured, glorified by works of charity. Okay, so in one important sense, charity is internal to faith. So you can say, in this sense, you're justified by faith alone. Why? Because the faith which justifies is the faith which has been, according to its very own nature, formed by that love which the Holy Spirit pours into your heart. Point two. In the way that the scriptures use the word work, you are at every moment of your life working in one way or another. A living being is always working because the category of work in the sense of ergon, and that is actually the root word for energy or en ergea. You can see as the preposition en in English that is in, and then ergea, which is a, a different, differently gendered form of the word ergon or work. So when you're breathing, you're working. When you're moving your muscles, you're working. You can think about the way that we use the word work in the English language in many different contexts, and you can see that the word is a lot uh, broader than what you perhaps thought when you only considered it in a strictly theological context. I go to work. I worked hard. 
Let's say you work at a construction company. What does it mean to go to work? It means you poured your energy. You poured your muscles uh, into constructing something. And you broke a pretty heavy sweat. You worked hard. But when you walk home, when you walk to your car, that movement, that itself is working. Because to be alive means there is a activity which is intrinsic to the very fact of you being alive. So this is evident in the fact that when you consider the word actuality, in the sense that there are certain things which have potentials, things that they could be but are not yet, and those things are actualized, those capacities become realized, uh, those switches, as it were, uh, are turned on. You imagine, for example, you have a car, and inside the car, it has a slot for a GPS system. And then at some point, uh, a car serviceman goes into the wiring of the car and turns on a GPS machine, which actually, it was already there. What you're paying for is for someone to actually go in and enable it. So it is a property which is internal to the car itself. Likewise, the word energia is the Greek word which is translated actuality. And you can see how even in the English language, it is cognate with activity. So an energy, this is an activity or an act. Usually in English, ergon is act. And uh, energia, that is activity. So how do you act? Well, a specific act is something which you accomplish by your activity. The activity is the aspect of your life by which you act, and the act is the specific manifestation of this quality of your character. So if you are a loving and charitable person, day to day, you will love people in a variety of different ways. Nevertheless, the love with which you loved them from day to day, even though it's manifest in a variety of different ways, is the same activity at bottom. It is not as if one day you are loving in one sense and the next day you're loving in a completely different sense. The only thing in common is that you use the same English word to denote two totally different ideas. No, the love which is in your heart is the very same. It is that it is manifest and realized in an endless variety of distinctly beautiful ways. So we're always working in this sense. We're breathing, right? We're always moving in one way or another. And again, this is part of the classical concept. Motion has its context in exactly these terms. The argument from motion does not exactly refer to motion in the sense that a thing is at point A in space and then later it's at point B in space. Motion instead denotes the change in a thing's quality. And the way in which that is manifest concretely in the physical world is actually in the law of the conservation of motion. Because what does it mean to say that if something has no external resistance, it will continue going on in the same direction forever? What that means is that it will not change in the quality it possesses. That, in the classical sense, is actually what it means for it to 
lack motion. For it to change directions, or ironically, to slow down in the classical sense would be a kind of motion because motion is change. But to be alive means that you're always in motion one way or another. You're breathing, you're walking, you're eating, you're sleeping. Everything you do is some kind of motion. And that is why when we speak of living by faith, it denotes both a pattern of life and the reality that we are raised to life in Christ. So this was a question that I had some time ago when Paul says, I live by faith. Is he saying that I am resurrected to new life so that I live instead of die? Or is he saying that faith is my way of life? And I've come to see that in reality, the fact that the single word denotes these two concepts is hardly something which is peculiar to the English language. Instead, it is present in many languages because there is a genuine conceptual bond between the two ideas. Because if one is alive, if one is alive instead of dead, one is in motion. One is always doing something or another. And what that means is you don't have the choice to vote present, as it were. You have to choose a particular way of living. So let's say someone says, would you come over? I'm, I desperately need your help. And you vote present. You try to vote present. Well, you haven't actually done nothing. What you've done is you have actively said no. There's no choice to not do anything. You're always going to be directing your activity, your power, your energy in one or another direction. You will always be working for somebody. And this is a really important point, which is why I belabor it. Because when we say that faith becomes effective through good works, we are not saying that faith is ineffective until we've met a certain threshold. Okay, this is a really important point. Many Protestants have, have made a criticism saying, well, okay, if it is faith in works or faith through works, what, at, at what point do we meet the requisite standard? At what point have we done a sufficient amount of works to be considered to have living faith? And it's not a bad question. And in reality, um, you know, I've been in orthodoxy for quite some time. I've been in orthodoxy for um, over 10 years now. And I am more per persuaded than, than ever that it has the fullness of the Christian faith. Nevertheless, um, I have certainly encountered uh, people who... Uh, to their own despair, think that that's what they have to do. And it's a horrible experience. Um, it, it's, it's a, you feel hopeless because you realize, I can't do this. I, I have no power to do this. So because we are working at all times, regard, we, like within the power of our choice is not work or don't work. Okay, the, the, the only time where we cease to be in motion is when we're dead. Think about what deadness is. A dead body doesn't move. If it is not affected by anything outside of itself, it will not move. But a living body, according to the powers which are intrinsic to its nature, which of course it has received from powers and energies external to itself, no creature is self-existent, but according to the powers which are proper 
to being human, a person who is uh, alive will move according to their own internal powers. They're always active in one way or another. We're always working. We can use our activity to eat a million fried chicken sandwiches. We can use our activity to go for a run. But we're always active. We're always doing something. We're moving our muscles for some reason. And when we speak of works being an instrument by which we are considered righteous in God's sight, we don't mean we need a certain threshold. Rather, what we mean is that trusting in Christ, having faith in Christ, we are impelled to allow that faith to grow and bear fruit in the direction to which we send our natural energy. That energy is always radiating out from us. So think of it in, 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 this, in this imagery. This energy is like heat. It's always radiating out from you. It's flowing from you whether or not you choose it. You're not conscious of most of the energy that's radiating out from you. You're not even conscious of most of the effects that you're having on other people, whether they're right in front of you or on the other side of the world. You've been bound to someone you know, anyone who you've even said hello to on the street. Some relationship has been created between the two of you, which is a thread through which there is mutual influence. And the degree of closeness and personal intimacy, whether that intimacy is between two spouses, between two uh, close friends, between a parent and child, that degree of intimacy corresponds to the strength of that bond through which there is a mutual influence. So we're always having a variety of complicated influences on creation and on the rest of the human family that we're not aware of. What works are, works which are of God, are those works which are empowered and operated by the Holy Spirit because they take that energy which is radiating from us whether or not we choose to send it forth and it redirects it to where it is supposed to go. So we are created in the image of the Logos and because we are created in the image of, our, of the Logos, we become who we're supposed to be by being joined intimately with the Logos. So we are created through him and we are made for him. And so to trust in God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit means the one to whom we are looking, the one to whom we are consciously directing those works which are in our power to direct through the grace of the Spirit, we are directing them towards the person for whom we are objectively created and through whom we are human in the first place. Which is why, if you are habituated in grace, you will find that the lights of knowing Christ far surpass anything that sin can offer, including in this life, not just in the future. And this is most certainly not a statement that if you do not feel this joy or if you cannot identify at any point with this sense of profound joy that you're going to go to hell. Because that joy is not the basis of God's final verdict. What that joy is, is when God has broken us open and he has poured the Holy Spirit into us and the life of the Holy Spirit kind of flows down into our inner being. 
And at some point, if we have allowed it to flow, it reaches the heart at which and through which we apprehend these conscious, what we would call emotional qualities. And if we die and it hasn't reached that point yet, that doesn't mean that, oh, we're going to hell. All it means is that it hadn't reached that point yet during our bodily life. But that joy is the inner essence of what it means to have everlasting happiness. I mean, you think concretely about what it would be like not only to not be sad at all, but to know for an absolute fact that you would never be sad ever again. I mean, this is one of the most wonderful things about finding out that Christianity was actually true and losing that sense that I was probably just fooling myself, which I didn't ever believe I would lose it. It was that the case for Christianity was good enough that I knew I wasn't going to be able to leave it without always looking over my shoulder. Because after all, if atheism were true, there's nobody out there who has guaranteed me by promise to lead me to that truth. So I knew that the case was, was good enough that I would always look over my shoulder. If, if, and I would always be worried that I had made a mistake. But by the power and grace of God, he took away from me those doubts and to realize that the most lovely dream I ever had, that there would be a time when I was happy forever in God and in others, that that was actually true, that that wasn't a fairy tale. It, it's, it's the best hopes and dreams which you daren't even hope could be true turn out to be just a slight shadow of the way that the world really works. So I'm going to make a video just on the following question because it's an important question and I don't want to limit it to people who have made it like half hour through this current video. But I do want to address this question in this video because it's highly relevant to what we've discussed so far. Many people have asked me since my debate with uh, uh, Matt Slick a very good question, which is, and I wish we, we had gotten to this in the debate, but just by the nature of the case, we didn't get to the specific question. Uh, I've asked me the question, well, the New Testament clearly lays an emphasis on the reality that in order to receive the blessing of the Torah, the law, we have to do it perfectly. That even a slight deviation from the law leads to us being considered unfaithful and receiving as a consequence the sentence of death. Now, let's lay out a couple foundations before we give a straightforward answer to how we understand this. First thing is that the law is not arbitrary. When God gives us divine instruction, the word Torah, probably better rendered instruction in the English language. When God gives us divine instruction, what it is, is it's a reflection of his character as it is imprinted on the wiring of the human being. Just he knows what makes a human being tick. He knows it really well, a lot better than we know it because he designed us. I'm sure you've had the experience of having an emotional reaction, which really surprised you. And you realize, wow, I didn't actually understand myself as well as I thought I did. Well, God knows himself with absolute perfection. He has no subconscious. He perfectly self-understands himself. 
And he's created us in his image, and he knows us far better than we know ourselves. He knows what makes us tick. So he knows exactly what will really bring happiness and joy. And the law, the instruction, is a how-to guide on how to acquire that joy. And just like anything which we do not at first understand, it seems really bizarre at first. It seems weird. It seems a little bit counterintuitive at first. And the scriptures are also designed in a specific way, not only so that the truth would be in them, but that the truth would be presented in such a way that it is effective to lead people to see it. God writes his book in a different way than we would write a book, giving people important information. Why didn't he just write a how-to guide? When God knows how we tick, God knows what sticks in our mind. That's why in the Proverbs of Solomon, there's so many little pithy sayings that you read once and they just echo around in your head. Well, the fact that the scriptures speak in such a way that it will echo around in your head, that's by design. Because what it does is, as you read other parts of the scriptures, or as you live your life in the world, that bit, that little pithy saying is bouncing around in your mind, and you observe something which you realize is very intimately tied to this little pithy saying that was in the book of Proverbs. And you understand both the world and that saying in a more deep way. Jesus is the master at doing this sort of thing. Jesus gives his teaching in such a way that it is very hard to forget. He says things which just stick in you. Whoever does not hate his father and mother cannot be my disciple. Now, you might not like that, but it sticks with you. People can quote it virtually word for word, even if they've only read it once or twice. And at first, it seems quite horrific. But as we understand the significance of his teaching, we see its genuine significance, which is that we have to love God so supremely and treasure him so far above everything else that the love for any other subject seems to be nothing in comparison. But here's the thing. In loving God and in coming to know him, we see more and more, as you get to know someone more and more, you start to pick up little subtleties of their character. You pick up ticks that they, they have, uh, things which it takes time to really realize about them. Well, here's the, the thing. Everything in the world was made by God. It is upheld by God, and God knows exactly the way that it works. And not only so, he is actively saying at every moment, this is going forward. Everything that happens, happens by his, at least his divine permission. I don't want to get into the problem of evil, but that's a related issue. It's an important issue. It's one that's never really personally, intellectually troubled me, but it definitely is an issue which should be talked about. Um, uh, and I'm not saying it's, a, it's like a, a virtue on my part. It's just like not one of those things which intellectually was the most challenging. Um, but I recognize for others it, it's different. Um, Anyway, the more you come to know God, the more you pick up on the subtleties of his character, the more you see echoes of him in everybody around you. And the more that you come to know God, the more you come to delight in God, because God, by his nature, is delightful. 
having been made in the image of God in order to dwell in him for eternity, as we come to truly know him, we become more and more joyous because this is the human being as the human being was meant to work. And that means that we start working more smoothly. Things just, uh, it's like a car after it's given a tune-up. It just seems to be working better. This is the way that things are supposed to be, it seems. Well, you start to see God and all these other people, including your father and your mother. And that love that has been created for God flows out into the world so that having known God and continuing to know him, that love for God flows into everybody around you. Because the love for God doesn't just produce love for others, but love for God actually becomes love for others because everything that exists echoes him in one way or another. Which means when you look at people, what you see, what you pay most attention to, is not the evil part of them. Because sin has no existence on its own. Sin has no real power. It always has to steal power from goodness. When sin is isolated from the goodness it's trying to piggyback on and take advantage of, there's nothing grandiose about it. It's just pathetic. Uh, I mean, it, there's, it's, it's pitiful. I mean, there's no real strength in it. It has to try to steal that strength from Christ. So what is it which exists most fully in a person? Well, it's the good in them. And so you look at someone, you see, your, your eye is drawn to that which you love. And that which you love, as God develops his relationship with you, is himself. And he's in everything. And so you look at a person and you're, you become increasingly drawn. I'm not saying you have to like get along personality-wise with everybody. But what God is working us towards is the point where we become drawn to everybody in the right way. Because we see God in everyone. We see the way that he is present in everyone. And we come to start naturally and intuitively picking up on things about people that they themselves might not pick up on. That they themselves might see and desire to have more of, but haven't connected it with Christianity, with the love of Jesus. So why is it that a person who does not abide perfectly by the law can be justified, can be declared righteous in God's sight, both now and in the world to come? It's because all of the works that are faithful and harmonious with what God has instructed, because the law is a revelation of his character, all of the works which are harmonious with the instruction that he has given are simply by the nature of the case, works that are of God. That is why we are told Ephesians 2.10, uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. That language of walking, think about it. Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. Romans chapter 4 even speaks about it. It speaks walking in the footsteps of faithful Abraham. Romans 8, walk by the Spirit. 
uh, I think it's in 1 Corinthians. Uh, you walk by faith, not by sight. This language of walking is clearly associated with this family of concepts. We are uh, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So Paul can use a negation to say something like we are justified by faith, not the works of the Torah. Well, he uses that very same negation to say, uh, uh, I worked harder than any of them, yet it was not, not, as a negation, I, but the grace of God, which is with me. And the negation indicates that the works of the Holy Spirit in us, we are not meeting him halfway. I've spoken about this repeatedly before. We are not meeting with him halfway. He is actually working in us. He, just as in the life of the incarnate word, the human power of willing, which Christ possesses, becomes harmonized with the divine power of willing, which is personally realized in the activity of the Son. So God is one will, and that one will is operative in three distinctive patterns or rhythms because uh, there are three distinct ways of being God, so to speak. And so... It's the same with the will. So God wills to bring glorification to the world. And what that means is the Father sends the Son. The Son becomes incarnate. And the Holy Spirit brings the Son into the world in the womb of the Virgin. So every divine person acts with the very same activity, with the very same operation, according to a distinctive mode or pattern or rhythm. And so we see it as the power of willing in the Garden of Gethsemane, that human capacity to energize or to act with those powers which belong to the nature of what it means to be human, to do the kinds of things that humans can intrinsically do. That's just part of human wiring, right? Um, that power of willing doesn't meet the divine will halfway. Rather, the divine power of willing grabs hold of the human power of willing and it restructures and reorders it so that it is disposed towards the good because Jesus at every opportunity always directed his energies his activities towards what he ought to have directed them he never sinned and that's essential for our salvation because, you know, Paul speaks of Jesus becoming a high priest like us in every respect. Well, you read the language in the fathers of the church about their incarnational view of atonement, how Jesus appropriated as the divine son everything that it meant to be human, such that as human beings, we can be joined to the divine son by appropriating that divine life in turn. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. And because humanity was created as an imprint of the divine son, of the divine logos, the two things, the two powers, the two energies fit together perfectly, one to one, because the one was made for the other. And the human operation, which is governed by the human power of willing, becomes an instrument through which the Holy Spirit in Christ unto the glory of God the Father acts in all things. And that's what 
is actually meant when we say, you know, Paul says, the life I now, I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not my own. This isn't a throwaway line. This isn't some pious expression which has no real meaning. Once pious expressions cease to have meaning and people just like throw them around because it just sounds like what pious people aren't supposed to say, they cease to serve their purpose. When Paul says things like, it's not I, but the grace of God which is with me, that has real concrete meaning. And I've spoken in my previous videos of, you know, having that sense. But because the divine power of willing is energized in the one hypostasis or person of Christ, such that the human power of willing and the human operation are integrated and harmonized with it, such that the two are distinct, but they are perfectly in line with each other. They fit together beautifully because they were always meant to fit together. Well, because of that fact, Jesus creates a way of being a genuine and real human being. And as no nature exists on its own, natures only exist insofar as they are actualized or individuated in distinctive subjects or persons who have that nature in a totally unique rhythm or way of being. The classical phrase would be the idiom of human nature. Well, because Jesus has created a new way of being human, what happens is that the death which is the invariable consequence of even the slightest imperfection in human life. This is what the Torah says. The Torah says that uh, I set before you life and death. And God promises to circumcise the heart of Israel so that they might be faithful in love. Uh, I mean, this is where Jesus gets the idea that at the heart of the Torah is love from the heart because when God describes how he is going to empower Israel to become obedient, it says, I will circumcise their hearts so that they may love the Lord their God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's where Jesus is getting it. It's not something he made up. It's not a command he just picked out of the basket. He got it from the scriptures, which he himself wrote. Um, The reason that we can be considered as perfect and be, uh, be resurrected gloriously on the final day, even though we do not abide perfectly by the Torah, which in invariably will bring death, is because not that Jesus has taken that death so that we don't have to take it. It is rather that Jesus has died that death so that it ceases to become the end of the road. It instead becomes a door. So every little imperfection that's mixed even with many of our best works, even if in a extraordinarily generous act of charity, there will often be mixed in a little bit of an imperfection, a slight inclination to pride and self-worship and, oh, I'm so great, law, oh, and a very slight, perhaps, distortion in the motivation you want to do it because you hope that somebody hears about it and will think lovely things about you that may not be even close to the dominant theme of that good activity but because of the nature of god as infinitely alive anything less than infinity is infinitely less than infinity 
one day I'll make a whole video about the notion of infinity, but there are all sorts of paradoxical qualities which it possesses, which help in a really deep way us understand the attributes of God, because God is infinite. There's always more of him to know. Some people take apophatic theology as a statement that we can't know God, but apophatic theology is meant to say God so transcends what it means to be a creature that we truly know God, and there's always more of him to know. It is the ground for knowing God, and not a rejection of the idea of knowing God. Well, that death that is by the deepest laws of creation, by the deepest principles of the way that the system actually works. If you change the rules, it wouldn't be the same thing anymore, in other words. Well, by those deepest laws, to sin even slightly will just produce death. It's not God. God comes in and says, oh, you disobeyed me. I'm PO'd, so I'm going to kill you. No, no, no. It's that God is the only source of life. God is the only one who exists in and of himself. So it's just the nature of the case that to see something other than God as one's ultimate good is going to bring about mortality and a tendency towards non-existence because there's only one possible source for existence, and that is God himself. But that death which is produced is died in Christ. So the way that you should conceive of it is the Holy Spirit in us, in joining us to Christ and in working in us such that the works that we do are actually his works, which are altering the character of our will and altering the direction and way in which our human activity is realized. Well, guess what? God in you is making a new way of being yourself. And that means when the glory of God fills all in all, when God claps his hands and removes everything which involves death, pain, any tears, all of it, he removes, there's something left so that you can stay. When God removes all of that, what remains is the real you, the perfect you which is perfect because it has been produced in Christ in the most real sense of that phrase. It's not a fancy, poetic, non-literal, cute way of allegorizing what it means to be a goody two-shoes. To live the life of Christ means nothing less than to live the life of God who never began to live and thus will never cease to live. So when there's a way of being you, which means that is the life that we live, that is what it means to live as who we are? It means to live that very life which is uncreated? There is absolutely nothing in or out of this world which the enemy could do to wipe us out of existence. It's just philosophically impossible. And that is why... The Apostle Paul in the letter to the Hebrews says that we ought to come boldly before the throne of grace because we have a high priest, that is Jesus, who has become everything that we are yet without sin, who as high priest has entered into the presence of God and makes intercession for us. As a consequence, we can enter into the presence of God 
and stand before the Father with the very title by which he has legitimate access to the inner sanctuary. How could that be the case? Because the real us is being built up in such a way that it is the great high priest who remains and lives in us. We have the title to stand before the Father. We have that right because when we stand before the Father, the energies by which we are doing that standing are the energies of Christ. They are not an imitation of the energies of Christ. They are the uncreated energies of Christ. And thus, in going before the Father with boldness and in so doing, actively appropriating those uncreated energies which facilitate the right to stand before the Father, we are growing that up in ourselves. Paul speaks of Christ being formed in us. In other words, we grow with a growth that is from God as, in a sense, Jesus grows up in us, just as Jesus was matured and glorified by his total faithfulness and love in his life, that Hebrews says he's perfected in that faithfulness and perfected means that the potentials of his humanity are made real are made fully actual it doesn't mean a problem is repaired it doesn't mean that he'd sinned and he's forgiven perfection in this sense of the word and I think honestly it's the time to it's time to start translating it differently because perfect has come to take on this exclusive connotation in reference to a difference from sin but when English translations use the word perfected it's speaking of matured not uh, repaired or forgiven from sin well jesus lives a life according to the economy of his incarnation and he is perfected matured glorified in that life and that life is the very life we live and it is replicated in us so jesus grows up in us the living and abiding word of god is present when we are born again and Having been born again to a living and abiding hope, that seed by the Spirit grows. In Isaiah 40 to 55, God says that my word will not return void, but will accomplish that for which I purposed it. And the word you see throughout the text refers to God's active fulfillment of his promises which are a seed. That's why the seed of Abraham is talked about so much there. Well, the seed is the word. Jesus even says that. The word that will not return void is the divine word, the Son of God, the person of the pre-incarnate Christ who goes into the earth and then by the Holy Spirit, Deuteronomy 11 and then throughout Isaiah, he's described as rain. The Holy Spirit falls on the earth and it causes that seed to grow. And the character of the glorious Christ grows up in us so that when the fire of God comes, everything is burned away, but we find there is still a great deal of us left. In fact, we are more ourselves than we ever realized we could be. And so when Paul says 
I am sure that he who began a good work will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Well, the basis for that final verdict of righteous, or in biblical terms, our final justification, Romans 2.13 and following, Romans 2.6-8 uh, um, and 2.13 and following, both of those speak of final justification utilizing the language of justification, and it is explicit that it is by works, and we are given absolutely no hint whatsoever that this is a different judgment than the judgment by which we are counted among the saved or among the condemned. It's not a, a, a separate judgment which just determines rewards, but everybody who is present at that judgment is already basically saved. No, no, it, this is the one judgment which is spoken of in Scripture, and we are judged by works. It's just that the sentence of death, which is carried out for everyone who has sinned, has already occurred in us. Because we have died in Christ. It's not Christ died instead of us, as I said. It's that we have died in Christ. I think Doug Wilson, and of course this doesn't imply a general agreement with, with a lot of the stuff he says, but he, I think this is a really good way of putting it. Christ did not die so that we might live. Christ died so that we might die and live so that we might live. Now, of course, one can't take that strictly because there are texts which speak of Christ dying so that we might live. But I think you understand the point that is being made, which is a real and true point that Christ's death in itself is meant to open the door for us to go and die with him. It acquires its significance as a means to a new life because of the resurrection. Paul says we are justified by the God who raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is what facilitates our justification. It's not just a sign that God has accepted the cross alone as the basis for our justification. The resurrection facilitates and enables our justification um, and all of our works become part of the basis for our final justification because, number one, the act of justification is identical to the act of raising us from the dead in a glorified body because, 1 Timothy 3.16, Jesus is justified by the Spirit when he is raised from the dead because he is raised from the dead by the fact that he's raised from the dead. That is how God issues his declaration. When God says righteous, he creates that which he says. His word is not a word which merely is imposed on top of that which already exists. It creates the reality it proclaims. So when Jesus is justified, when he's declared righteous, well, that is simply to say that he is raised from the dead in a glorified body. So on the final day, we're justified in our being raised in a glorified body. All of our works attest to that perfection which permeates the resurrected body. Well, how can that be? Because we've sinned. Well, the reason is because those sins have been taken by the Spirit and have been turned and redirected. Because whether or not we regret the fact that we've sinned, there's no question that we have utilized a real human power, a real human quality, and directed it towards that which is sinful. But that's not the end of the story in Christ. That very activity it still has a future because the Holy Spirit grabs hold of it. And if we allow him to, he will turn it around and use that very act and redirect it in the act of repentance. As C.S. Lewis says, the uh, repentance is not 
what you have to do in order to turn back to God. It simply describes what turning back to God means. In the act of repentance, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that very sinful act is taken hold of and redirected so that it is crucified. Everything which was sinful about it is left behind, crushed to dust, it disappears, and the only thing which is left is the fruit of repentance. And so that sinful act, the reality of that sinful act is reprocessed so that what you have is fruit. And that fruit is life because repentance is a good. It is a virtue. God always will, if we allow him to, invert curses and make them into blessings. Here's a really cool example. And it's too bad this is near the end of the video where I imagine most of you will stop watching because it's just, it's just a cool example. Uh, in the book of Genesis, Simeon and Levi they uh, kill, they slaughter all of the Shechemites. Now, Jacob was trying to evangelize the Shechemites. I don't have time to go and prove this right now, but this is absolutely true, and I'm willing to prove it if you're skeptical. Jacob goes, he wants to evangelize the Shechemites. He actually has them all circumcised. They're going to come into the family, and because of what the prince had done to one of Jacob's daughters, Simeon and Levi, two of his sons, go and they kill all of them. And Jacob says, you have made me a stench in the nose of the people's roundabout. In other words, no one's going to listen to me about God anymore. So Joseph goes to Egypt in an incense caravan, and that incense sweetens the smell of the family of Abraham, and thus the God of Abraham. But the story I want to focus on today is the story of Levi. Levi goes with Simeon, and he kills all of these Shechemites. And it's a, it's a terrible crime of violence. Well... Because of that, Jacob curses them. He says, you will not have an inheritance in the land of Israel. But that very curse is grabbed hold of and is not thrown away to turn into a blessing. Here's how. In Exodus, that same tribe of Levi who was descended from the figure who was cursed and on account of whom the whole tribe was cursed to not inherit the land. But because of the tribe of Levi's unique faithfulness to God, they go and execute the idolaters at the golden calf. And so in Genesis, you see Levi went mad with rage, went and slaughtered many of the people who Jacob was trying to show the name of the one true God. Well, here in Exodus, the descendants of that very same person, they execute the Israelites because they're defiling the name of the one true God. So in both cases, you have an execution, but in one case, the execution is uh, uh, causing the nations to blaspheme God's name. In the others, it is manifesting the name of God as that which is supremely valuable and at the heart of soul and the heart and soul of the nation of Israel. Now, my intent is not to get into a big thing about, oh, well, well, isn't that mean of God? It's rather to make the point that what happens to Levi in Genesis I think there are answers to that question. I mean, could, is, is this a just thing to do? But I just want to, you know, focus on the main point, which is that Jacob has cursed Levi to not inherit any portion of the land of Israel. And that curse is irrevocable. So how can God bless them? The curse has no revocation clause. It has no expiration date. Well, here's how. In the book of Deuteronomy, on account of the fact that God had consecrated Levi as his priestly tribe, God says, they have no inheritance in the land of Israel. There's the part which is the curse from Jacob, because I themselves, I myself am their inheritance. The Lord is their inheritance. And so 
Levi is scattered throughout the land. They're everywhere in the land of Israel. Whereas once, that would be because they did not have their own special slice of the land, which belonged uniquely to them. That was a curse which Jacob put into their history, and there was no expiration date for that curse. But the fact that they didn't have a slice of the land for their own, that turns into a means by which they're blessed, by which they're set apart for God, by which they become a uniquely consecrated tribe to God, by which they are able to approach the God of Israel in a way that no other tribe is able to approach. Moses himself is a descendant of Levi. And Simeon, the other brother who kills the Shechemites, Simeon co-inherits some of the land which belongs to the tribe of Judah, which, of course, anticipates what Christ does, because it is Jesus Christ alone who, by his faithfulness, possesses the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. But, like Simeon, we have been disinherited, but we are joined to Christ, and so we jointly inherit the land, the inheritance, with him. So, why is it that we receive a verdict of righteous which can only be given to those who have perfectly been faithful to God's way of living? Because God's way of living is life itself. There's no other way to have life. How can that be? It's because we can die and still live on beyond it. It's because we can die and leave part of ourselves behind but keep walking. It's because we can shed part of our skin without shedding our whole body. That's what it means to be crucified and resurrected with Christ, so that at the end of the age, which is the beginning of the real true world, at the resurrection of the dead, at the eighth day when God is all in all, he will be all in us too. And there's going to be more of us left than is present in us now. All of the sins will be taken away and we'll be really ourselves and perfect. And that perfection will belong simultaneously to God and to us because it is the Holy Spirit who has worked in and through us. So I want to finish this up by pointing to these texts here. And I'll start at the bottom because this is St. Porphyrios. St. Porphyrios says these words, um, well then really this is the way we should see Christ. He is our friend, our brother. He is whatever is good and beautiful. He is everything. Yet he's still a friend and he shouts it out, you are my friends. Don't you understand that? We're brothers. I'm not, I don't hold hell in my hand. I'm not threatening you. I love you. I want you to enjoy life together with me. Do you understand? I recommend those who struggle with this by Wounded by Love, which is a transcription of St. Porphyrius's words, uh, and read through it because St. Porphyrius repeatedly talks about how we need to understand that we can be confident in Christ. It's not humble to think one is going to hell because that's not a statement of, oh, well, God is so much greater than I am, uh, so I'm definitely going to hell. It's a statement that God's a liar because to think that you're going to go to hell despite desiring to turn to Christ and despite believing that he is Lord of all, it's, it's, it, that, that's a, a statement that your sin is more powerful than God's love. And so to say that, I don't know, I think I'm going to, I'm, and I'm not going after people who wonder this, it's an understandable impulse, but I think it has to be 
um, fought against because despair is the sort of grief which leads to death. God's kind of grief, the grief which leads to repentance, is never one which produces depression or despair. Um, at, it's not a kind of grief. And this isn't saying that like if you're depressed, you're, you're in some horrible mortal sin. What it is saying is that that quality of depression is something God wants to heal. It's not something that he's producing to punish you. Repentance is a sincere desire to come back to Christ, which is grounded in the hope, which means confidence that Christ has been raised from the dead and is more powerful than even our worst transgressions. The gospel is not only for the victim, it is also for the victimizer. The gospel is not only for the one who has been murdered, it is also for the murderer. It is not only for the molested child, it is also, most scandalously, for the pedophile. The gospel is for the pedophile. So, I have these quotations from the New Testament here in order to show that you can be confident that you will be saved, and that's not an arrogant or bad thing to be confident of. Philippians 1.23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. This is the same person who confesses himself to be the chief of sinners. So why is he so confident that he, when he departs, he's going to be with Christ? Well, that's because in Christ, there is no condemnation, and we are severed from Christ when we, in a very distinct and decisive way, turn away from him. We can have a very imperfect repentance, but the question of whether we have repented or not is does not require excessive introspection because the question is simply, are we lying? And we can answer that question directly because the question, are we lying, is the same in this context as, are we intentionally lying? We're not saying the full truth about ourselves, but that's just what it means to have an imperfect repentance. And Jesus encourages us to embrace an imperfect, slight repentance and an imperfect, slight faith. The quotation from the Gospel of Luke that I have up right here is in the very context of increase our faith. If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could see this mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. So... A part of what it means to have faith like a mustard seed, this tiny little fraction of what God wants to create in us, which is a happy confidence, like faith grows into hope in the biblical sense. Um, uh, faith is that which empowers true repentance because repentance is rooted and grounded in hope because hope is rooted and grounded in the promises of God. And hope is sustained by faith because faith trusts that God is exactly who he says he is. And faith is empowered by the constant memory of those mighty acts by which God has manifested his faithfulness again and again and again and again. So Luke 17, 3-4. Here's a very important text to pay attention to. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, Jesus will elsewhere give a parable of a servant who begs the one to whom he owes a great debt to forgive the debt. And the master forgives the debt. Well, then the servant of the servant begs the one who has just been forgiven to forgive his debt. 
and the one who has just been forgiven instead sends him to debtor's prison and says, I'm not forgiving your debt. And uh, the master, who had originally forgiven the first person's debt, sends him into prison and is horrified at this. And the lesson here is that when we forgive, we do it because God forgives. So the kind of forgiveness which Christ commands us to have here is meant to exemplify that sort of forgiveness which belongs to God. And so some people would say, well, obviously, if you fall into the same sin multiple times in one day, then your repentance isn't real. It's not sincere. And I think that's BS. Your repentance is obviously weak. It's obviously a lot less than perfect. It's like a mustard seed compared to the size of a mustard tree, which is why Jesus says that right after teaching this. Um, seven times in one day, think about how imperfect one's repentance would have to be to do the same thing seven times in a single day. Nevertheless, Jesus says, you must forgive the one who repents. Um, or, I mean, and, and one, one implication to this is you must trust his sincerity. Point being, it does not require an excessive degree of introspection. We don't have to understand ourselves in a profound way to know if we are being sincere in this sense. All it means is, are we intentionally lying? Do we mean what we say when we want to turn back to Christ? And that's going to be mixed up with a lot of imperfect desires. But as long as there is even the slightest genuine desire to follow Christ, that is enough. That makes it real and God promises guaranteed 100% rock solid if you confess your sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so don't make God a liar by saying I'm not sure if I'm going to be saved or not because I'm so sinful uh, not only is I think that just not scriptural. Not only does that contradict the counsel of St. Porphyrios, who I think is very profound and incredibly practically useful, it's just not good for the spiritual life. It doesn't produce sanctification. Being utterly terrified of God makes you want to think about him as little as possible. And something which does that produces precisely the opposite result of what the Holy Spirit wishes to produce. The fruit of the Spirit is produced in a soil which is watered by happy confidence that Christ has forgiven us. If we are not sure if Christ has really forgiven us, how can we forgive others? If the Apostle Paul says, forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you, that means nothing if we don't even know if we're forgiven or not. The whole scriptural message is predicated on our knowledge that God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. And because we have so much confidence that God has done this for us, we forgive others. So, we can have peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And some people might say, well, it's not talking about peace in the psychological sense. And my response is, uh, yes, it is. And Jesus in speaking of the nature of peace, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives it to you, do I leave it with you. Jesus couches this as the opposite of anxiety. So what is peace? It's you are not biting your nails. Why are you anxious? Jesus says, the father knows that you need these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things are going to be added to you. Now that's actually true. 
if you really believe that and it's natural or it's it's normal and impossible not to have that mixed up with all sorts of doubts but if you ask the holy spirit he will grow it jesus says um uh, if if will a father who loves his son give him a serpent if he asks for a fish well how much more will the heavenly father give good gifts namely in context and what jesus identifies it as explicitly how much more will the heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask well, the holy spirit is the one who grows that little mustard seed of faith and so that confidence which starts out shakily you start out by making one step on the water and you start to sink but he will reach out and grab you every time and lift you up until that confidence flows through your whole being and so that's what can make us joyous even in the midst of sorrow paul said uh sorrowful yet always rejoicing um and it's being there are certain people that i've seen and known who you can see a glint of something uncreated in their eyes um and the character of their smile is such that you can see that there is another world that lies in the contours of their face and that's the kind of person god wants to make us not slightly better people not a little bit more effective at giving to charity but a truly new kind of person and in that we can be happy so i hope that as the evangelist fish would say as i as i lovingly call them um <laughs> as they would say i hope something in this ministers to your heart um so thank you very much and uh please remember me in your prayers